Attention. This podcast will make you happy, make you sad, believe and make you mad, but they're sure to make you feel included. The things they talk about are completely random. It's story time with Matthew Haslam Hammond. Gentlemen. Welcome to Storytime with Matthew Asam Hammond, the podcast where you, the member of the public, will get up and tell your story. Why? Because everybody has a story. Um, this podcast, like always, is sponsored by the Pastor Assist podcast. Follow Jack, Doug, uh, Callum and Carl as they discuss basketball. Why? Because they like basketball and it's there for all your basketball needs. Now, uh, today um, <laughs> is a very special one because like, I never thought we'd actually even get you know uh, someone who was even famous on the show, but we already had Tim from Alistair. But today we have actually got Brendan B. Brown from Wheatus. Um, so this is going to be a really fun one, to be honest with you. So, uh, like always, as a wrestling fan, it's time to introduce him. So please welcome to the podcast, Brendan B. Brown. So Brendan, welcome to the show. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. It's just, it's just like, you know, I had uh, Tim from uh, Alistair on the show uh, recently. He lives in Chicago. So it's probably quite funny for you seeing like a pitch black, you know, sky out, you know, uh, from your side no, of the camera. No, no, no. I'm in New York, so it is in fact dark here now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's that time of year. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you always grown up in New York? Because I read on Wikipedia, all right? So this is done my research here that you were from Manhattan. <laughs> from where? Manhattan. Uh, I'm not Manhattan. No, I was. I'm not from Manhattan. Wikipedia I, uh, lied, the bastards. <laughs> no, I grew up uh, on Long Island, mm-hmm. which is uh, would be like if I would like is Long Island is to uh, Manhattan, what Essex is to London. Well, I like that, you know. <laughs> you know, uh... maybe not quite as posh, but uh, you know, sim- similar geography. Yeah. Uh, eastern suburbs, anyway. But um, yeah, I grew up on Long Island, about uh, I guess about thirty miles outside of the city. And I, uh, when I was in college, I started auditioning. I was in and out of the city as a kid all the time, and when I was learning how to drive and stuff, I, I a lot of what I learned was. New York City driving, you know, so mm. I, uh, um, but I uh, wound up uh, going to college in Pennsylvania, a lot of auditioning back and forth, and uh, Pennsylvania was about, my college was about, I don't know, about uh, two hours uh, west of Manhattan, so um, <clears throat> driving in and out of Manhattan all the time as a, as a kid, teenager, young adult, and, um, and then uh, I moved there in the 90s, I moved to the Lower East Side, and it was from there that we kind of started doing our showcasing and, and stuff uh, as a as a live band. Hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's that's the that part of our stories. It's a, the first the first two clubs that, that we kind of rotated around uh, the Mercury Lounge and the Luna Lounge were on the Lower East Side. They're right around the corner from each other. Yeah. So. So touching on Long yeah. Island, you're from the same place as uh, Mick Foley. Um, <laughs> bit of North Long yeah. Island <laughs> knowledge yeah. for you. Yeah. Trying to look like him by a via neglect. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a much skinnier version, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a much weaker version. Uh, you know, he's a hardcore legend. You know what can you say? <laughs> yeah, he's a really smart guy too. He's mm. got a lot of good ideas, and um, he's, he's an interesting fellow. Uh, he's a New York Times bestseller, so, you know, uh, he's, he's beating both of us there on that one, you know, I think like, you know, one day we need to collaborate on a book and then beat him and then be like, ah, in your face. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I, don't know. I don't know if he can be beat, to be honest. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's done multiple books, we're fucked. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, you obviously, so did uh, we, like, the, the uh, origination, uh, did we just, like, originate from Long Island then, or was it Pennsylvania? No, we just originated in, in Long Island. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, growing up in my mother's house, I was playing guitar all the time. It's all I did when I was a kid. And I, uh, I went to a high school that was far away. It was, uh, I had to commute there. Um, it, uh, it was about, it was like a good uh, two thirds of the way to this towards the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went there and back every day on the train because there uh, the. There was no school bus that went that far. Yeah. Strangely, as a as an American, I never rode on a ever once rode on a, a yellow school bus. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I went to grammar school or grade school, I was close enough to walk, and when I went to high school, I was so far away I had to take the train. So, I, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was um, 
not a lot of friends. You know, a lot of guitar though. Yeah. Uh, tons and tons of just music all the time whenever I could. Uh, <laughs> music and homework. <laughs> <laughs> was your was your like homework listening to Iron Maiden then, or was it? Uh... <laughs> well, when I you know, not really. I mean, it was like there was a lot of serious homework to be done at this school. Mm. Uh, it was very sort of almost militaristic. Oh, uh, really? Not quite a military. I mean, not quite that, but it was uh, very strict and lots and lots of uh, work uh, yeah. to be done. It was almost like when I was 13, I turned into like a little businessman on the train or something, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's who I was hanging out with. I was hanging out, like getting on the train, it's six o'clock in the morning on Long Island, it's all stockbrokers going into the city <laughs> or construction workers. It's either the guys who work in the buildings or the guys who build them. Yeah. Know? So, um, that's who I was spending most of my travel time with as a, as a teenager. I always look back at school myself and think to myself, like, you know, uh, at the time, like, half the time, like, I really can't be asked to go to school. But then when you look back at it, you're like, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, personally, you know, because if you had all your friends there and things like that, so, you know, uh, and then, yeah, yeah, so that, that was that was school for me, you know. But uh, <laughs> Well, that's good. That's that's really nice. I I uh, didn't have that experience, so I would, I would definitely change school if I could. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would go back and pay me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's, that's different, different experiences. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, like, um, like, so you went to Pennsylvania for college and then obviously we, as you know, originally started from here. Did you move back to, uh, New York, uh, to like, you know, do that first album? Uh, yeah. So the first album sort of began in guitar riffs and me finding my voice is certain somewhere around 93, 94, very much in private. I never showed anybody, although I was in a lot of bands as a lead guitar player and a backing vocalist. Um, I was sure to keep my, uh, stuff I was writing that I would sing to myself. Um, just cause I really didn't feel confident on my voice yet. I hadn't found my voice. I hadn't found like exactly what I was trying to do. Um, I was uh, in and out of three or four bands, a band called Hope Factory. We toured with uh, Joan Jett uh, in the opening slot supporting her. They're kind of like, like a shoegaze band, like mm. almost like the Stone Roses or or uh, one of those very Britpop influenced. Yeah. Somewhere between Stone Roses and Ned's Atomic Dust Band, that kind of thing, a little bit of The Cure as well. Um, and then I was in a, a hardcore band earlier than that called Bandersnatch, which was my first CBGB show was with that band. Um, I was writing in that band, but it was really immature, not, not very developed. To, you know, Long Island kids' version of a hardcore New York City hardcore band is not <laughs> circa 91 or 92, you know, it wasn't the best. Um, it was fun, though. Uh, but the, uh, the real experience came in Hope Factory, opening up for Joan Jett, and um, playing another band called Moxie with this uh, girl who was a singer-songwriter, a girl named Jeanette Kime. Uh, and then, uh, you know, basically doing what other people wanted me to do in, as a, not a sideman, but a band member, I guess you could call it. Um, and, uh, then we got, I got involved in this Mr. Jones thing, which was the first sort of, well, it was the second or third record that I got involved in making. And that actually got a deal with A&M, uh, a big, big time record deal. That was the first time anything I had done, uh, got signed, but I wasn't involved in the signing. I was kind of, uh, pushed out, um, when it came time for contracts and all that stuff. So uh, from those experiences, I had some uh, real road experience and some cynicism at the same time, and also a great amount of wariness about music industry and how it worked and how dangerous it was maybe. So I wound up uh, learning quite a bit and, and knowing quite a bit about how it worked before I ever started showcasing with Weedus or doing playing shows as Weedus. Um, and all the while, 94, 95, 96, 97, I was developing Teenage Dirtbag and Hey Mr. Brown and Sunshine and quite a few songs from the second album as well um, and the third. And I was just kind of tinkering with how do I make an acoustic guitar sound like an electric? How do I sing and play these parts at the same time? Where is my vocal range? What, a, what kind of an artist am I? What kind of a singer? What am I writing about? You know, all this stuff, all the incubator shit that a band has to go through I went through as a single uh, private solo artist, yeah. <laughs> you know, sitting, 
kind of singing to myself and making demo tapes for myself and um, and keeping them to myself. And then uh, bit by bit, I invited a few people to rehearse with the sort of caveat, you know, this is this weird stuff that I want to do. And uh, I already have the bass lines written and the drums are already written because I've been working with a drum machine. And like, this is the stuff I want to try. You know, it's not collaborative. I hope you don't mind. But um, these are the ideas. I just want to see how it works out. And uh, it's, it sounded good. It was coming together. And then uh, my brother joined up and we started doing more and more of the sort of bouncing between the Mercury Lounge and the Luna Lounge. And uh, what once was 15 of our friends became 300 people we didn't know. And a lot of them, uh, music industry, record label people, just hearing about it. Um, Teenage Dirtbag was performed probably the first time live in like 97 or something like that, 98. Um, And word got around quick and and by 1999, by the summer of 1999, there was a line around the block anywhere we played. It was was people we didn't know. It was out of our control. We were no longer um, worried about where audience was going to show up from. because of course any band no matter how good you are the first time you play new york city you're calling you're calling your mom like hey mom can you come down and buy a ticket you know like it's really new york city does not give a shit it's seen everything it's heard everything you know so you really have to like fake that first couple of shows with your crowd um which all new york city bands know how to do (laughs) friends and family but like i said very quickly you know i had to like put my mom on a guest list you know (laughs) sneak her in or something so um it was cool. It was an interesting thing. It was the first time that ever happened to me where uh, I'd been in and out of bands, played CBGB since I was 19 and all this stuff. And now I was 27, uh, you know, a, a few years later. And it was suddenly the first time that an authentic following had developed. That was like, was the real thing. And it felt very different. It was like, whoa, it's kind of just a little scary, almost like, like this almost like a responsibility like what have i done you know um and uh it was that summer that columbia records started talking to us there was a couple of other labels mca was hanging around and j records was still a thing um and uh uh or was it jive i don't remember but anyway the uh, um labels were were sniffing around us trying to talk to me and stuff and i was saying stuff like we're not really, we don't really want to sign a deal necessarily. Um, you know, we're giving away the CD at the shows, but, uh, you know, uh, the point is that I'm the producer and I don't want to get involved with a label cause I know you guys don't do that. And that the way that I took that conversation, they, they wanted to talk to us even more. It didn't turn them off. It, it drew them in. So, uh, before we knew it, we were talking to this one guy at Columbia records called Kevin Patrick. And he was, um, he stood out because he didn't want to agree to us producing our own record. He wanted us to produce our own record. He was like, he was the only guy who was, you know, other guys would say like, well, we can talk about that. Kevin was like, no, 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 you have to do it yourselves. I like what I hear. Don't touch it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That kind of thing. So I was like, okay, you're different. Um, so we, we signed a deal with Columbia. Um, and we signed the deal memo. We were officially off the market in uh, December of 1999. And the following February, uh, when everybody got back to work, kind of after the music industry takes like January off, you know, um, we signed a full deal and we were officially signed. But I still worked my day job in Times Square, which I had been working the whole time at a computer company uh, building virtual private networks. Um, we... I stayed there and worked until the album was done and then some until April. Um, March after that February that we signed, we moved all the gear that we had um, into my mother's house to record, to finally record. And this would be the fourth version of the album that we recorded because it had been through a few earlier sort of, I guess you could say prototype recording attempts. Um, And we, you know, we, we thought we knew what we were doing by then, or at least enough of what we knew what we were doing, and, and uh, uh, we did it. We, we three weeks uh, of like really hardcore, like 
working my day job, jumping on a train at 6 p.m. out to Long Island. It was like I was in high school again. Uh, work all night till 2, 2 a.m., sleep for four hours at my mom's place, jump on an early train back to the city, work all day, do it again. It was like three weeks of that, I was ready to keel over. Yeah. And uh, that was when we finished, the, we finished the recording of the entire first record. We did, uh, I think we tracked 11 songs during that period. Uh, all of which are on the first album, with the exception of, I think, uh, I Never Write a Song About You and Pretty Girl, which became B-sides, and then they were replaced by uh, the cover, A Little Respect, and uh, Rich Leegy's composition, uh, Punk Ass Bitch. So yeah. that was the first album. That was how it got me. Yeah. It was stressful and unlikely. <laughs> Touch on the album anyway, like you absolutely must have been so like, you know, mind blown about how well obviously Teenage Dirtbag just you know, it was a phenomenal song, like literally it was probably like number one every, like everywhere around the world and like, you know, uh, <laughs> to this day. Uh, no, not not at first. Mm. Uh, the record came out the summer after we recorded it. Uh, we we finished and delivered the album in April yep. of two thousand. And I went down to Tennessee to mix it with Dave Thoner, who did a killer job. And we, um, he'd also done uh, For Those About to Rock, um, which is why I picked him out of, out of the list of people who were serious mixing engineers. Only one guy had an ACDC credit, and I was like, that's the guy. That's <laughs> so, um, um, and then uh, it came out, we did the video, it came out in, in, uh, in the summer. Uh, and it started to be warmly recepted in the United States, but uh, or received, I should say. Um, and uh, it, it, then it kind of fizzled out uh, around the autumn. It wasn't doing so well. It was out there kicking around, but it wasn't doing uh, that well. And the label was kind of over it. You know, they thought we had come and gone. Mm. First song hit, nope, you know. Um, and so we were touring that, we toured that whole uh, autumn and uh, September, October, November, and by the by the time Thanksgiving rolled around in November, at the end of November, we were toast. We were like playing in front of like two people in Lawrence, Kansas, and we all were really sick from you know having like bronchitis on the road, which you can never you never get well, you know. Um, and I got home uh, back to uh, my apartment in New York in December. And I thought I was going to sleep for a month and find something else to do with my life, honestly. And then we got a call from the uh, second week of December from our A&R guy, Kevin, who resigned us. And he said, you have to go to Australia. And I said, I have to go to the fucking hospital. I'm not going to Australia. I'm going to the hospital. Because <laughs> I'm sick. I haven't been able to shake this cough for a month and a half. And uh, he said, no, no, no. You really got to go get some sleep and go. You're going to Australia next week. I said, no, seriously, I'm not going to fucking Australia. Like, we got into a little, like, spat about it, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll tell you. You're going to have a number one hit in Australia. And I was like, how do you know that? He's like, because we shipped, like, so many units, and, and we know that it's going to happen because the stores are selling. It's already selling. It's, it's, it's happening. Your video's on MTV down there. Uh, you're having a hit in Australia. You have to go to Australia. So, I'm, you know, Australia is where my favorite band is from, ACDC. So I thought... Yeah. Okay, well, we got to figure out a way to get. If they like us at all. We got to figure out a way to get down there. Uh, so we did it, and we had about a week and a half of like a mini tour and some television appearances. And it was the first time anybody showed up. It was like the Mercury Lounge thing happening over and all over again, but in a whole country, mm. you know. Which that was another level of like, wow, what can we do with this? You know, uh, suddenly fortunes are reversed, and we're we're looking okay again. Uh, what do we do? You know, what do we do with it? We had no idea because all we cared about at the time was how to like pull the trailer out of a ditch in, in Wyoming. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. was not, that was our biggest concern. Now it was like, holy shit, how do we send all this, our gear to Australia? How do we do a show in Australia? You know, nobody knew how, how to do it. So um, we, uh, we figured it out and then we got back and then it kind of died down again in February, a year after we signed our record deal. At the end of February, I got the same call from Kevin. He said, now you're going to have a hit in the UK. And this is a bigger deal, he said. He's like, this is a totally different thing. You're going to be on top of the pops. It's blah, blah, blah. It's all happening. 
you know, the box at that time, that week, the reason he was calling me was the box. Remember the box? Yeah, Smash Hits, um, second channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, the video request channel. Uh, that was so, that thing was awesome. That was an incredible hmm. thing. Um, uh, we were number one on the box, the, the video for Teenage Dirtbag shot right to number one. So we, uh, BBC picked it up and we released the single and we were uh, number two on the pop charts there. And uh, when Radio 1 added the song into heavy rotation, that was it. It was like a whole new world opened up and we were we were different people suddenly, or allegedly. But the, the point is, is that that first whole, almost whole year after signing a record deal, nothing happened, yeah. you know? Close to nothing. So, um, or anything that started to happen had fizzled out, which is even feels a little worse, you know. Um, so, uh, I think that the um, the strangeness with which the the album started uh, was good for us because we learned how to tour and we learned how to play and we stayed away from the hyperactivity of like the rare air and all that stuff. And when we finally started getting invited to Top of the Pops and award shows and shit we had this feeling of like how did we sneak in you know we yeah. didn't feel like we belong um so you know yeah it was it was it was like that yeah it was slow yeah it's one of them things isn't it really like, you know just to build up you know just like you know that story just sounds amazing <laughs> especially especially like when you hear that like, yeah well you need to go to australia it's like, no i'm not going to fucking go to australia <laughs> like, that's, that's just amazing but um I, I remember, like, you know, the first time I heard you guys, it was literally, like, the most mind-blowing thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Um, I was um, at school at the time in junior school. Yeah, it would have been because the album's 20 years old now. I'm 29. Uh, and my, uh, my mate Steve, he bought the single over. You've got to hear this song. This is a great tune. Didn't listen to it that night or whatever. And it probably like, left it over. You know, it was there for about a week or whatever. And I heard some girls singing at school. And is that that Teenage Dirtbag song? Yep, that's the song. And I was like, sweet, you're going to give that a listen. Just took it over to my like neighbor's house or whatever because my parents used to go over there. It's like every Friday, get drunk. You know how it was. Uh, and then uh, I put the CD in the computer. And it's one of them ones where, you know, the, um, the music video comes up on the computer. And then I listened to it probably about three hours in a row. <laughs> like, just on loop and basically they're probably just getting absolutely sick again oh yeah that was that was the very first time that, that they started doing that where the video was on the scene mm. that was a weird little like transitional <laughs> album artifact you know this shit um, is before YouTube you gotta remember that <laughs> yeah most of most of what we did on our in our first you know two years of being on a major label and our second two years of being independent after a major label was no YouTube, no digital distribution. It was like the wilderness. Mm. It was really weird. And, uh, you know, the fact that we survived that is just down to luck, mm. really. Um, it was all timing and luck, and we were on the right side of the 90s for getting a record deal and having a big old video and the whole, like, radio promotional thing, but we were on also on the right side of the 2000s for getting away from that shit just before it all collapsed. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of caught caught both both trends, uh, one on the down wave and one on the up, and we kind of like jumped off. And we were uh, we made a lot of mistakes in the first like 2004, 2005, 2006, trying to get independent, trying to be seen, which was very difficult. Um, and uh, and uh, but we. The net result was we did some touring and we got a couple of albums out independently. Mm. And by the time 2008 rolled around, uh, we had three, three independent records at that point, or two, or yeah, three. Yeah. So we, um, we, we, were just kind of trying to do work that we liked and we that we wanted to go in the direction of without thinking about because it was kind of a waste to think about like what does the label want to do. And so yeah, I never thought about that anyway. But you know, it was like a was like okay well there's no labels so <laughs> it's it's over uh we don't have to worry about that so let's do whatever we want but the, the coolest day i think well, one of my coolest days of my life ever was when um so my brother he done his uh, sats and um my parents bought him like a load of like presents and things like that and uh, my dad obviously you know caught on to how much i was listening to your uh, your beautiful song and he comes back home with a wheatless album and goes there you go I listened to that, you know, that whole thing probably about... <laughs> so fast forward about 15, 14 years later, 
I saw you uh, once in Party in the Park at Hyde Park uh, once. But we'll go to the, the Chinnery's gig. This is the infamous gig where me and you first connected on a bromance level, but none other, right? And uh, <laughs> so there's everybody at the start. And you're going, what song do you want to hear? And then everyone's just going, Teenage Dirtbag, Teenage, and things like that. There's me going, Truffles, play Truffles, play that shit right now. You're like, Truffles, okay, we'll play Truffles. And then uh, next thing you know, what song do you want to hear next? Everyone doing the same thing. Sunshine, play Sunshine. <laughs> So I just remember that album, like, you know, from start yeah, to finish. Essex is often like that. It's like, we want the album, we want it now, we want it in the order that it was, you know, it's like, kind of, okay, you get what you want, you know, it's your show. Um, <laughs> but Shinri's is a place where many bromances, uh, you know, I've, I've had, I've had uh, wonderful long late night talks with uh, James Bourne's brother, Nick, yeah. who lives, lives and has a business in Essex. And, uh, that's just a place where, you know, to be honest, when you pull up on any of those sort of carnival, like, uh, boardwalks in, in yeah. the UK, right, you don't get the feeling that there's going to be a lot of, like, Alfred Lord Tennyson happening. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like the, uh, it's the fun park. It's not the, it's not the thought, it's not the deep thought, you know, place. Um, but but that's not that's not the case. The United Kingdom is a place where there's there's deep thoughts happening everywhere, <laughs> and I've had some really interesting conversations about politics and real estate and like all the kind of stuff I don't understand about your country. I learned at Chinneries, <laughs> like, so you know, um, uh, it's it's one of those places. Paul, our bus driver, is from Liverpool, and it seems to be the case every time we go to Chinneries, he and I wind up out front there. I usually have a a bap, a breakfast bap, and yeah. he's usually having his coffee. And we talk about World War Two and whether or not they launched ships from this pier and like all this like we just go back and, and have this whole like England conversation, you know? Um and I I'll whenever I pull up in Essex I always feel like I'm gonna learn something about about England that I did never do. And it's true. <laughs> Oh, you know, well, I'd say we're uh, quite a spontaneous country <laughs> when it comes to it. <laughs> I'll tell you, my favourite memory of that gig, though, right, was the part where uh, I, I like, somehow got you guys to play uh, Wannabe Gangster. You know, I love that tune a bit. So I, I love the slow version. The fast version didn't really get behind a lot, but, you know, I had the album, so obviously I was going to stick to the original, you know. But, so... You'll be playing that song. It comes to that big break where basically, because you go, because I'm a wannabe gangster. So I'm like, you know, got it all ready because, you know, I knew the song word for word because, you know, my childhood album. Put my hands in the air, gone, because I'm a wannabe gangster. I've looked down and everyone's just looking at me, including you guys who've just stopped the song. And, go, and then and then you just point at me and go, you, I want to take you on tour. I'm like, get in. <laughs> Yeah, we like to do that, like stop and see what the crowd's doing for a second, you know. I, I don't ever want to have a show where where we just do what we do and it has, you know, you just stand there and take it. Like, that's bullshit. I can't. I don't like shows like that. Unless it's ACDC, you know, they can give it to me all night long and I'll just like, whatever you say. Yes, yes, Angus, play whatever, you know. But, uh, but I just feel like these days, you know, the crowd... Uh, and uh, performer uh, barricade is not quite as starting to melt away a little bit. Um, there's no longer this sort of like doesn't have to be this inaccessible, you know, aloofness that that uh, artists used to have. Um, and I'm fine with that. I'm I'm a fan of that. I like to get to know people and what you guys do out there and how you're feeling. That's going to change the way I play. Mm. Um, and I would rather have a conversation about it up front than, you know, stumble through a set clumsily until I figure out what you want. Like, let's get it out on the table, you know? How you guys feeling tonight? What's the story? Is anybody sad? Is anybody happy? What do you want to hear? Let's do this. You know, we're here for it. And that's the way we approach shows. We don't do set lists. Uh, we try, like I said, really hard to respond to the environment that we're in rather than trying to force the environment that we're in to conform to us, mm. you know? I remember um, you, you played uh, One Direction's What Makes You Beautiful, which is an absolute banger of a tune. It's catchy as hell. But you went like, uh, this is a One Direction song. And everyone went like, boo. And you went, wait, so you want. I'm getting royalties. They're playing my song. <laughs> 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 and uh, 
you played along to it. And I remember, like, you know, tweeting, like, you know, on the next days on Twitter, and basically this girl from France has gone, like, followed me back, and then she's asked me, well, like, who are we? And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, she was a massive One Direction fan, but, you know, you know, no idea. How, how you guys are just across the, the, uh, the bay from Margate, yeah? I believe so. They're about three hours away. Um, at the end of the day... Um, but, only, but only because it's you got to go around. Right? Yeah, 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 I think so. Like, if, uh, there were, um, huh? if there were a bridge across the Thames... Well, is that, that's the Thames there, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I'm aware, you know, my, my geography is not amazing, but I believe it's the, uh, the River Thames, yeah. So over, so over the other side of the Thames there, in Margate one night, not on the same tour, but on a tour a few, few tours earlier... We played that One Direction song, and some guy in the audience wasn't having it. He attacked me, tried to beat me up, right? Oh, God. <laughs> not the time. Not the first time I've ever tried, had somebody try and kick my ass. I'll, I'll have you know. But this guy was for real, and he caught me by surprise because I was standing there with a guitar singing to 400 people, and I didn't know, I didn't expect to be grabbed off by the leg by some drunk asshole and, you know, who didn't like One Direction. So it was a big to-do. Security jumped on him, but they did it the wrong way. So I, he couldn't get up. And he was around my ankle against the stage, and everything was a mess. And I had to, like, take my guitar off and hand it to somebody behind me. And I went to, I, I, was, I was, you know, I, like, I've been in a scrap or two. I went to grab his hair. I was going to pull his hair up. He had his little green mohawk, and I was going to pull his head up and start giving him the fucking one for me. The old uh, left, and, right lights out. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I grabbed that little tuft of hair to lift him up, and I just, he slipped right out of my hand. He had, like, some kind of, like, Crisco oil in his fucking hair, man. Like, <laughs> just, like, like motor grease or some shit. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't even grab him. He was a slippery little eel, man. He was just, like, this guy on the ground, and he's under all the, all the security guards. Three, three security guards on him. It's 400 pounds of dude on top of the dude who's on top of my leg, you know? Oh God! It was one of those moments of like, how did this happen? This isn't what this wasn't what I was thinking when I wrote Teenage Dirtbag. Some people just assholes. See any way to describe it? Dead, and you know, he was kind of. Like, I think he was one of those like maybe wearing the white laces in his in his in his boots kind of guys. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, Margate, like. Uh... I'm going there. Well, the plan is to go there next year for my 30th because bowling the super playing there uh, on my birthday on May 5th. Um, they're doing a seaside tour. Have a word, get on it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, my 30th, I kind of want to do something spectacular. Uh, so uh, like I'm even going to bring my dad along. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to make him go on the pole because he's a bachelor now. Uh, <laughs> see what happens. Well, I'll have to do the same thing at this rate as well because I'm, I'm a happening single. Well, say I'm a single man. Uh, so, <laughs> you, know. you, you said you're 29. Yeah. You know, if you can stay 29, you can stay single. I mean. Yeah, true. Go. It's a good point. You know, it's like, it's just the fact of like, is this gig gonna go ahead? Because it's the you know next year. You know, and like we're still kind of like in the whereabouts of like what the fuck is even happening outside. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange time, man. Like I. I feel uh, this weird sort of pause with everybody that I know and talk to, and people I work with, you know, road crew guys, our tour bus company, all the people who I usually have a scheduled conversation with, you know, like mm. this time of the year, we start talking to Paul about getting the bus down payment. Um, we start talking to the freight company. We say, like, all, all these things are cyclical things. For 20 years now, we've had these annual conversations when it's time to hit the road, and it's none of it's happening and it feels really strange. It feels like this, this odd pause. If I'm telling the truth, we had done so much touring in, in 2017, 2018, since the busted tour, since the, we played the yeah, yeah. Of busted. Uh, since then, we have been on the road so frequently that I kind of was starting to feel like it, it, we could benefit from some time off, maybe a full six or nine months off the road oh. and uh so we had that plan we were we were saying that the uh you know the, the anniversary tour is going to be like this and we were planning for how to do it it's going to be a little bit bigger than the other ones it's 20th anniversary and we're going to get the, some of the original band members are going to come out and do, do some work with us on stage and we're gonna it's gonna be fun you know uh, my original idea was to uh 
have the new Wheatus open up for the old Wheatus. So, you know, we, we do uh, all the other stuff out two, three, four, five, six, and seven, uh, and then we stop, take an intermission, Phil, Mike McCabe, and my brother jump on stage with my sister and Catherine Frog, and we do the remainder of the first album, you know? Yeah. So, um, that was the plan. That was what we were going to do. And, uh, it was looking really good. It was looking like it was going to be a lot of fun and it got to kind of got stuffed up pretty badly. Mm. You said you touched on it earlier. Um, busted. You played with them at the O2 arena. I was there. Great gig. Uh, (laughs) how did you enjoy the O2 arena? Oh boy. It's like, it was like singing in, uh, in a giant spaceship or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Just lights and people like like plastered all over the walls and up to right up to the ceiling. Um, as far as you can see and even farther. And um, you know, when you're opening up for somebody you're kinda of ready for anything, you know, you might you might uh, you might be well received and you might not. And mm. that's just how it goes. You know, you do what you do no matter what. You you try to give everybody the bang for the buck and stuff. Um, and I wasn't ready for how kind and generous the crowd was. They were so nice to us. And, and I felt like, wow, this is the kind of respect that like a headliner gets at one of these things. It's like, really, you're singing along and it's, everybody's here for it and nobody's throwing anything at us, you know? Uh, I've done some opening gigs where, man, they was like, they were ready to kill us, you know, like just, just kill you. But this was quite the opposite. And really wonderful just to come and just experience people that way. 16,000, 18,000, 20,000 people just sort of like willing you to do the song the way that they know it. Um, and, uh, and just being so, so completely at their mercy in that way. It was really nice. It was, it was really wonderful. You know, was it, was it more, um, was it better than playing for, uh, spider Nick Webb's, uh, wrestling entrance that time? No, nothing was better than playing Spider Nate Webb into the, <laughs> the Nate, Nate fucking Webb into coming into the ring. It's like that's you know, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I got so many like you know, as you refer to it as a bootleg DVD, but like pirate DVDs are like. Uh, independent wrestling and like every time you'd see him come to the ring he'd literally be walking out to Teenage Dirtbag so and he did it for probably a good 20 years so you know <laughs> it was like yeah. such an iconic yeah. thing for you to play like me and my mates were talking about in the uh, in the chat earlier was like, oh, I fucking love what is when they play Spider Nate Webb what a bunch of geezers <laughs> yeah that was so fun man and the wrestling community that's another group of weirdos that you know, it's stunning how diverse they are and how sort of accepting they are. And like any, like, you know, they're, they're just, a, it's just an island of misfit toys. Like independent oh, yeah. wrestling is like my, it's the real people of the earth, you know? Um, and that's, that's an old, that's really nice to be welcomed by that crew, mm. um, accepted into that strange world. And since then I've done a couple of appearances of, I beat up MJF a few times, you know. <laughs> Fuck that guy. But uh, but but anyway, the uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like it's it's miraculous. Independent wrestling is is one of those like I don't think even Walt Whitman would have wanted to see that. You know, he would have been like that. You guys are doing what? <laughs> that's that's it's cool. Uh, one of my favorite wrestling shows ever was uh, me and my mate Simon went down to this show called uh, it was an IPW show in. Uh, Oh, in like Kent or something like that and it was in like you know you can only describe it as this like little tiny room in this like sports facility where like they had like you know just one basketball hoop up and you know, it was really weird but um, yeah this this six year old kid was behind us shouting at this wrestler calling him Stinky Head and uh, for some reason we just went into fits of laughter it, it was just so childish but and like this it was like a serious <laughs> Though, man, yeah. isn't it? Like, that's it. That's like wrestling. Is you're there to get it all out, man. Like, come on, let's do this. And like, uh, this guy was getting absolutely like pummeled by this other dude, but there's a kid who's going, I hate you, stinky head. <laughs> just like, just yeah. absolute done. Like, yeah, that's it. I, I can go home happy now. Like, we laughed so much, we just had no energy left for the rest of the show. There's a good three hours left in it. So, like, fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so cool. Man, but 
<laughs> you, you have, a, you have like a bromance with James Bourne. How did you even like meet? Was it at a party in the park in the UK or something? Or was we, it when he uh, was in Son of Thork? We, we played there together, but I don't think we actually met that mm. day. Um, we did finally, he reached out to me through a fan or who's become a friend, uh, a girl named Gemma, who's super cool. She's like a member of the family now, you know? Mm. Um, she put us together on email around 2005 when he was getting ready to do the Son of Dork record. And yep. uh, he wanted to write, and we wrote together. We bashed him out. He and I, like, it's weird. Like, if we're in the same room, a song's going to get written, you know? <laughs> like, that's just going to happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, we met. We, we wrote a couple tunes for his record. One of them was Boy Band. Uh, we had a long conversation about, you know, what it means to be in a band that's popular but not respected, you know, mm. um, and to, you know, f- try and figure out, like, what that means, how, how in control of the way people are seen, or the you know, ways people see you, are you, you know, how, how much can you control it, how much yeah. should you control it, you know, um, and we came up with that, the boy band song from the Son of Dork record, which mm. is, uh, and it was an opportunity to play to, uh, be produced by uh, Gil Norton, who has produced some of my favorite records, the, uh, the Foo Fighters, Color and the Shape, mm-hmm. um, Trump Pixies, all the Pixies records. Um, he's my one of my favorite producers, so I was a jump at the opportunity to, to get in the studio with him. Yeah. Uh, James, James extended that opportunity to me uh, and reached out to be friends, and we're still friends to this day. He's a guy, James Bourne is a guy who's like, I hear a knock at the door. I haven't talked to him in three years, and there he is, and he's got his bag, and he's like, hey, I'm here, and that's like, that's how it is, you know, like, oh, hey, dude, <laughs> Ben's right here, you know, shower, you want to get some food, you know, <laughs> like, like it, we, we, you know, kind of like, we don't need to do all that silly little French shit, we do, like, the real, like, live, live in French shit, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. So you guys, um, you toured with him when you, uh, I think it was you guys, uh, bowling for soup, obviously son of dork. Um, and I want to say it was either, oh, who was it? I think it was Army of Freshmen. Yeah, yes, right. Army of Freshmen. Mm, good. Still one of the best bands that ever lived. Um, yeah, that was a good tour, man. That was like uh, that was like one of those rare special opportunities to tour with only people that you like. You know, <laughs> only only people. Um, you know, you just try and keep it professional under any other circumstance. But with those guys, it was just like, they just were so weird. Everyone was just such friends. That it was so easy, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was like that. It was like the, one of the coolest, easiest tours I ever did. Despite the fact that I caught fucking pneumonia and wound up in hospital oh, in Reading. That was, oof, man, that was gnarly. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't really know what to say after that. We apologise for giving you pneumonia in the UK. I guess the lesson there is like that's part of it. Like you could still have a good time and almost die. That's what touring is, you know. Yeah. So were they like so was that was that your like your favourite tour you've ever done or uh... favourite tour? Oh man, that's tough. Um My favourite tours are always the little ones that I do where we're headlining. Just mm-hmm. our tour with the with the band where we have our little family and we get to do our little thing every day. Yeah. Um, and we reach that equilibrium where we get really kind of good at it. And it's like somewhere, somewhere around the beginning of the third week, we start, we start not looking like idiots anymore on stage. You know? <laughs> or with me, I do at least. Everybody else is better than me in the band. But, but the point is, is that like the opportunity to spend some good time doing what you do with people you trust is that's the definition of tour. So when we do it with our little operation, with our tour bus guy, with our front of house engineer, with our little tour family, Jane Greenwood from Birmingham is, is one of the people who's been with us on tour since maybe 06 or so, mm. like early. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a family thing. And when we get to do the family thing, we really enjoy ourselves. Yeah. I remember um, going to uh, Reading Festival. I think it was two thousand. Two thousand. I don't know what year it was, but I remember Weezer uh, were on stage, and they just went like, "Oh yeah, this song is uh, this song used to be big. This song was big in the year 2000 and they just rocked out to Teenage Dirtbag and just just saw the people just going absolutely like apeshit for it. 
it was great, you know, like, and then I was just thinking, oh my God, this is beautiful. <laughs> so I, I, I tell you what, like you said about, you know, well, headline and things like that. Like I, I, I always, uh, when, when I go down to like an open mic night or something like that, I always like put me on first. And I'm like, why? Well, it's because it's blatantly going to be someone better than me going on straight afterwards. <laughs> So I always have that, you know. Yeah, there's, there's always somebody better. You yeah. Know? You just got to do it. Especially when you're like, you know, you get to the final person. You're like, yes, I think I've conquered this night. Like, for fuck's sake, when they come on. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like when, when yeah. I, when I, uh, I cover a teenage dirtbag, of course. So like, I always steal your uh, breathing in technique at the end. Like, so I got to kiss to and You know, so it works. It really does. You got a pretty high falsetto there yourself. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, this, like, you know, uh, uh, I, the songs, you know, at time can be a bit too, like, you know, um, like, you know, high for me, especially when you go into the chorus. Like, I like to, like, keep it like going, because I'm just a teenage. But, like, yeah. But. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it is one of those moments is, uh, when we play that song, it's like, it's very evident that it belongs to the crowd mm. and not to us. You know, it's their song. Their song, they're just letting us play it, you know that kind of thing. And I'm fine with that. I'm yeah. totally fine with that because I, I'm there for them to have a good time. Yeah, of course. So, I'm you know. gonna have to, like how? I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing that's. There's very few things that I can authentically spoil my night if I'm being paid to stand on stage and play for people. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Some kind of crazy violence, or somebody gets hurt, or you know, we find out that there's, you know whole tours canceled that night or something, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, there's a very, there are so few things that really ruin the night. And, uh, and it's a privilege to just, to hand it over to them. You know, mm. it's like, they, this is yours. We're here because of you and, you know, own it. And they do. You did. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, I try. <laughs> I think there was a time with you guys though. You, um, you were at a festival in the UK and you were just playing some tent. And then, like, the tent just got over, like, loaded. You know, they had to, like, you know, force people to go away and things like that. I can't remember where it was. And I think the tent started falling apart. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. Uh, no, uh, we had two tent experiences where we overloaded the tent. One was in uh, Isle of Wight. Mm-hmm. I think that was the one. That was more recent. And the earlier one was uh, the first time we played Tea in the Park in Scotland. Ah, fair enough. Uh, that, that tent heaving man that was like that was scary <laughs> the, Scot- the scots will not allow you to have a bad show <laughs> oh god bless just, the scots you know <laughs> it's not permitted they're not they're not having it it's you it doesn't matter are you sick you almost dead good get up there this is going to be the best show of your life we'll make sure of it and that's that's how they make, you know how they do it man. that's yeah. how they roll you don't fuck around I, I love scotland personally because of my favorite drink in the world is iron brew um Keeps me ginger, so you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had a I've had a, a drink from the Orkney Islands called uh, Skull Splitter. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I can't it's, say it's I have. A very high alcohol content mm-hmm. stout. It just comes in this little black bottle, and it's the real thing. Man. <laughs> it'll, it'll tune you up. <laughs> Next time you're back in the UK and you're in Chinneries, we'll get a couple of bottles. And we'll do them after the show. Deal. If they have them, it's happening. Yeah. yeah. We, can, we can get them somewhere, you know, at the end of the day. We'll find a place that can ship them over. I'll, I'll, I'll spot that part out, so don't worry about it. Yeah, Google, Google Skull Splitter beer, man. Yeah. That's, the one, that's the one. How did the the, the, the um, little respect come? How did that even come across then? Because you said it wasn't like, you know, you had like another song like lined up for the album originally. And then, um... Right. Well, so we played a bunch of covers when we were doing shows in New York City in the early days in the 90s we did uh, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up To Be Cowboys by Willie Nelson we did uh, Cheap Tricks Surrender we mm-hmm. did that one um, we did uh, what else Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield mm-hmm. uh, a few others uh, and we we really had a good we had a good like covers rapport happening you know yeah. uh, or repertoire I should say um, and one of them was A Little Respect uh, mostly because it was this beautiful song that I remembered from the sort of lonely moments at Sweet Sixteens or whatever. And uh, I was also on the radio quite a bit um, when I was a kid uh, because it was a radio station called WDRE uh, 92.7, 
which was strange for New York, strange for America at all, because mm. it really centered around Brit pop, uh, Depeche Mode, Stone Roses, um, Smiths, uh, you know, The Cure, uh, played all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Along with a few American bands like uh, Violent Femmes and They Might Be Giants, and this sort of what was then referred to as alternative music, mm -hmm. uh, which was not particularly heavy rock at all, REM would fall into this category. This was sort of like, uh, you know, not Reagan's rock. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not Ronald Reagan's rock music. And uh, it was, uh, it was uh, the station was on Long Island. It was a Long Island radio station. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was like, also weird for that reason there weren't a lot of those either so um you know it was this local station that played uh erasure every day you know you could and i, and I heard it on that radio station it was like a beautiful song it's a really beautiful song along with chains of love which is another beautiful hit of theirs um and i just remember thinking that we should figure out how to work that up on guitar you know see how it feels i know it's become mostly a synthesizer song does have acoustic guitar in the original version, but it's very dance track, you know? So, um, I also was impressed, uh, you know, they were, uh, Erasure, uh, were way ahead of the curve on, um, you know, sort of gay rights, LBGTQ, trans, you know, yeah. kind of rights. And, and they were stepping out, you know, in, uh, Long Island, which is, a, you know, a Republican stronghold, uh, wearing pink G-strings at Nassau Coliseum, you know, hmm. playing in front of 20,000 people, not giving a fuck. And I saw that, like, that was that was incredibly brave because I knew for a fact you could get your ass kicked for acting like that where I came from. Okay. And um, I uh, I was opened up to that as a, as in my teenage years uh, because uh, the kids who, at my high school, who would sneak a little bit of, I went to a boys' school, but the kids in my high school were wear a little bit of eyeliner, which was illegal, you know, uh, at my high school. Uh, they listened to WDRE. And uh, it was a new world opened up to me when I was 13, 14, 15, from that, from music world. Um, and the notion of, uh, of diversity that way. So, and it was also these absolutely gorgeous songs, stunning love songs. So um, that was the reason that I was always a fan of that one and just, Whenever I could, as soon as I could, I worked it up with my band, and uh, we, it didn't it didn't require any effort. I have to tell you, a song that good, it just plays. It doesn't matter what instruments you have, you know, it's playing you, you know. Mm. So um, we it, it came off so good at the shows that our E and R guy was like, "You gotta you gotta record it for the album." And I was I was reluctant to put a cover on the record. Really, I didn't want to do that, but um, but it was the right song yeah. to do that with. You know, it was. Uh, unexpected and uh, I loved it so I, I still love that song I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my favourite memory of it is is obviously you know uh, having that Wheatus album uh, you know your parents buy you for, at nine years old and next thing you know you see your dad singing every word to uh, like a little respect when he comes I was like how the fucking hell do you know this song <laughs> <laughs> well it used yeah, to be quite a big hit back then yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that would have been an older tune yeah mm. So, yeah, he knew every word, so I was a bit jealous of him knowing every word before I even completed the album, whatever. So, uh, you know, <laughs> then again, he bought me the album, so can't stay mad at him. <laughs> it's a forever tune. It's just a forever tune. You know? <laughs> Man, it's such a, it's, it's absolute, oh, I don't really know how to describe it. Like, have you ever seen the video of the guy on the uh, London Underground? He just starts it, you know, by singing a cappella, and he gets the whole... Um, like the whole like uh, like you know station to sing it with him. I haven't seen that. No. Is that a, that's a YouTube video. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you after this. You know, it's a really, oh, it's a really really cool one. Like you know, he's just like standing there himself. Like it's probably in Soho, you know, singing along. But yeah, he aces it, and uh, just everyone else joins in, and yeah, it's a really cool experience. That's great. Yeah. What a great song to do that. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so um, what? What like these days? So you you're still recording songs. You said to me before we even started recording uh, that you uh, working on a couple of new songs, uh, which is like um... sure. Um, so uh, 
we re-recorded the first album this year. I think you know, for the first time ever, Teenage Dirtbag is in rock band, and that is the new version mm -hmm. that we uh, re-recorded from scratch, finished it, uh, earlier this year. Um, and the rest of the album is going to follow like that. Uh, but there were also, over the years, we found all of these songs that I had kind of worked up into a demo state, but that we never worked on because they all kind of sounded like they belonged on the first album, and we didn't want to go revisit that ground, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, but now it makes sense. And what it's amounted to is kind of like an alternate universe version of our first record. Yeah. It's, um, it's like if, it, uh, if we took another path, you know. Um, so it's uh, the first of those is out on the Teenage Dirtbag single, a song called Mope. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you heard that or not, but uh, that's how we're going to do it. We're going to release these sort of like matter and antimatter tunes um, next to each other. Uh, the, uh, the original and its alternate universe partner, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually the album will consist of 20 songs, uh, one of which is this tune that Joey is contributing, our, our backing vocalist Joey from Gloucester, England. Mm -hmm. is, uh, she's a singer-songwriter, and she's contributing this uh, tune that I'm working on right now to the, to the whole thing. So um, that's one of the 20, and I uh, just finished the vocals on it. But um, yeah, so I've done with... Uh, I think I'm done. I'll completely finish with nine of the original first album songs and three of the um, antimatter songs. And as soon as I'm finished with the tenth first album song, which is Pretty Girl, uh, I'm gonna rip through the new stuff because it's so much more exciting. Yeah. Uh, but the but the process of recreating recreating the old record is rather tedious. It takes a long time because your um, it's a forensic exercise. You're kind of like looking up what you did in the past, trying to remember how you got there, recreate something that already exists. It's not a very creative process. It can be fun to get it right. And I think we got it right with Teenage Dirtbag, but it takes a long time. It's worth the effort, but it takes a long time. So, you know, my uh, my creative energies are not really in full bloom at the moment because of this old material, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to uh, cracking them open. Um, in the next couple of weeks and, and ripping through the, the other 10 tunes and there's uh, three of them are finished so far yeah. and I'm going to do the other the other batch so the other seven are, are on deck but, um, I'll tell you which is a really really catchy song you know for everyone who's listening um, uh, Lemonade love Lemonade <laughs> thanks man that was my that was my choice as the first single from our second album mm. Uh, record label disagreed with me, of course. You know the story, but uh, yeah, that was the one I wanted. I wanted to go with. Yeah, well, that's it's still it still did its own work. It's still uh, one of our most popular Spotify songs. Got over a million plays, and people demand it on stage, and everybody knows it. So it's kind of it kind of did its own work in the end. Yeah. So um, touching on about like earlier on where you uh, said about you know wanting to turn your acoustic guitar into like an electric one. It's like when you see you live and like you play like Teenage Dirtbag, you, you rock a guitar little solo at the end. And uh, I think you like basically, you know, say to everyone like, yeah, you can rock an acoustic guitar. It's absolutely fine. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I prefer an acoustic, uh, you know, my guitar lives in a state of permanent feedback, hmm. uh, which I control with some pedals. So when I, you know, when it's just the acoustic sound, it doesn't feed back too bad. But I, and I have a whole bunch of different acoustic sounds that I use for the different songs. Mm -hmm. But when I go full on into the choruses, like the chorus of Teenage Dirtbag or the Oh Yeah section, man, that that's like, I mean, it's it's like put imagine plugging a guitar, an acoustic guitar, into a Mesa Boogie full stack and just cranking all the knobs and like listening to the feed. That's how it lives in that feedback. So, yeah. um, I, uh, I fascinated with the, the extreme end of distortion because that's kind of what it is mm -hmm. you know and it gets more difficult to and the more distortion you add the more harmonic uh, layering you add um, the harder it is to get it to sound right in each song so you have to be careful about it it's like dealing with a nuclear weapon one of the one of the guitar tracks that I recorded for Teenage Dirtbag this, the, the new one I was having trouble distinguishing it because you need to create a file name so you can look it up later I, call, I wind up calling it Guitar Noble because <laughs> it was just like it was just so overdriven and I had to stand in front of the speakers to play in front of speakers it was just like it felt like the guitar was just going to explode you know <laughs> um, so yeah it's a, 
it's a process. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, basically come up to an hour now, so I'll be letting you go. But before you go, can you can you cover the song Night Elf by the uh, the guy called Matthew Hasn't Hammond? That's me, by the way. Me? Can I what? Can you cover the song Night Elf by Matthew Hasm Hammond? To, that, that's me, by the way, you know. Uh, You're asking me to play one of your tunes, aren't you? Yeah, I feel like, you know, it'll go well with your sound. I'm not going to lie. You want me to learn it for, for tours? Is that it, what you're saying? It's a four-corded song. It's really easy. It's about World of Warcraft. I wrote it once. I wanted it to kind of be like a new metal song, but... I'll you tell, know, you what, tell you what, man. E- email it to me because you got my email now. Yep. Sounds good. I'll put I'll put it I'll send you like the YouTube link like I did with uh what I'm gonna do with that little respect thing. And uh it's it's a terrible song about World of Warcraft, but you know when you kind of think to yourself, you know what? That might go well on like, you know, that their their set, you know. So I feel like uh you'll you'll be like, you know what, you wrote me an absolute ge- like genius of a tune, you're gonna make me millions, Matthew, so uh <laughs> I'm looking forward I'm looking forward one day to saying to the world from the stage this is a terrible song about World of Warcraft. Exactly. Yeah, it goes, you know, uh, well, the, the chorus is, I don't have school today because I'm a motherfucking night elf. Night elf, you know, so. So it's a catchy tune, but, you know, <laughs> I feel like you, you might be able to work it. <laughs> I accept. Challenge accepted. Boom. You know, it's one of them things you don't ask, you don't get, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, My dogs are excited about it, as you can probably hear. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I feel like we've made magic already. <laughs> but I always remember as well, I'll, like, you know, I'll tell like, you know, one more story. I won't leave it on, you know, uh, my song or anything like that. When, uh, <laughs> so, you know, obviously we met in Chinneries and then you played Hyde Park uh, with Muck Busted. Uh, you're on that little stage. And I made my way to the front of that crowd to say hello to you and say, hey, do you remember me? And your words were, oh, my God, it's you. How you been, man? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do remember your face. Yeah. It's, it's hard to forget. That was a weird gig. That was, uh, we were originally scheduled to play uh, with Graham Coxon from Blur, who I love, in, uh, who threw a beer at me one time. But we'll get to that later. Um, he, they, you know, we uh, we uh, were supposed to play in this tent. And, oh, that's the story you might be talking about. Okay. So now, it blew I, know, over. now I know what you're getting at. We didn't actually wind up playing in that tent, which is why I didn't remember it. But the tent that you're talking about, uh, it was not stable. It didn't fall down, but it was threatening to. So they had to cancel that whole, every performer that was supposed to go on in that tent got canceled from the whole entire festival, Mm -hmm. except us, because we were the only act that flew in from the United States. Yep. So that would have been a really tough, like, oh my god, we flew 6,000 miles to not play? Like, So they were like, no, 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 we're not having that, we'll put you in this. And they put us in that place that, over there where you saw us. Yeah. Now, we were playing at the same time as, I think, the Backstreet Boys? No, you were just Is before them. Yeah. Okay, so we had this, like, massive crowd of Backstreet Boys fans come over to this tiny, it was just so small, the stage was like the size of CBGB's. And it was, the PA wasn't big enough for all those people. You know, it was like 10,000 people suddenly showed up in front of this tiny little stage. But we did a show anyway, and you were there in the front, weren't you? Yep. You cheeky little night up. <laughs> I still got your plectrum with the ticket, so, you know. Uh... <laughs> but, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate your presence. Thank you for that. That's all right. <laughs> uh, it was it was a great show. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, that, that album was uh, revolutionary to me, so uh, it changed my life. Thanks, man. That's all right. Um, but yeah, like I'll let you go anyway because uh, I've used an hour of your time. But it's been really fun having you on, and uh, who knows, we might be able to do it again someday. Yeah, indeed, maybe. <laughs> I'll see you soon, brother. Of course, you too. Thank you very much for coming on, Brendan. Just remember, guys, follow Brendan on uh, Instagram and and Twitter at Wheatus. He's easy to find. What are you going to say before you went? No, I was going to say, man, I mean, are you sure you recorded this whole thing? Yeah, yeah, basically, I've got this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the new world of, like, Zoom. Like, don't don't shut it off until you're sure that you got the audio and everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got, I've got a laptop over here, and then they've got the microphone next to this iPad, and uh, it's just working its beauty. <laughs> well done, well done, well done. Well, well I appreciate you inviting me on, and 
it's an honor to be on your show, and I thank you for challenging me to play your song. <laughs> and uh, send it to me on YouTube, and I'll, I'll do my best. Awesome. You're going to see me with some long ginger locks. I now look like a fat love child of Ed Sheeran and Seth Rogen, so, you know. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know that? Huh? Does Seth know that? Uh, I don't think so, but, you know, you probably be like, who the fuck is Matthew Hassan, man? <laughs> <laughs> All right, my brother. Well, no thanks worries. again. Thank you very much. Have a great evening, and uh, yeah, I'll put this up on Sunday. Yeah, man. Take care. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. Always remember, guys. Uh, this is story time with Matthew Hasm Hammond. Uh, ooh, baby. Do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>